This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their stories of inspiration, struggles, and successes. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Hey everyone, good afternoon. What a beautiful Friday it is. Welcome to Tales from the Pros, and this is Michael Giorgio, your host and co-founder of Imagine Ovation. Our unbelievable guest with me here today currently leads digital marketing for an award-winning Truth Youth Tobacco Prevention Campaign, helping to extend the reach of its brand and advertising. As an industry-recognized leader and digital marketing innovator, in 2017, he received the prestigious American Marketing Association's 4 Under 40 Emerging Leaders Award, and in 2016, he earned a spot in the Direct Marketing News 40 under 40 list and was ranked 13th in Onalytica's top 100 digital content marketers. And his name is Dionisios, aka Dio Favatas. Dio, appreciate being with me here today, man. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, I thank you so much, Michael, for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, quite an introduction, right? You've been uh, you've been busy these last, I'm sure, what 20 20 years <laughs> doing marketing. Yeah, I you know at least my late acclaim is that I'm still in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's crazy is that with me, I'm 31 years old, and a lot of people are like, "Man, you've been doing this for 25 years." I'm like, "Ah, I mean, am I? Man, I know I'm bald and everything, but man, I'm I don't hope I don't look freaking 40, 45 years old." Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm at that point where I deliberately shave every couple of days because of the gray whiskers that are that are springing out on my face. So. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's amazing how um, when you think back on it, like you know, being part of the early internet boom, um, it feels like it was yesterday. But when you think like, when you say it's 2018, it's like whoa, did time fly? <laughs> I know, I know, man, it's it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, Dio, really appreciate being with me here, and and, and I, you know, I, I we we've spoken a few times, and um, as I mentioned, you know, what really caught my attention for, you know, first off, you're Greek and I'm Greek. I know you're from Greece and uh, you mentioned a lot, a lot of your family's from Kalamata and I'm actually from Cyprus. So I'm hundred percent Greek Cypriot. And I was, you know, me and my team were looking for a lot of Greek leaders around the world, as well as other business leaders and influencers um, that just uh, are doing amazing things and are helping a lot of people and, and just um, being a part of massive initiatives. Um, and I, I, you know, you caught my attention with, just the overall marketing and tech content that you're delivering um, on Twitter and all these other social channels regarding nonprofits. And um, as well as I know that, you know, you have a love for um, just marketing in general, digital marketing. And I know that you're, you're part of Truth Initiative and just the overall, these commercials that are, I'm seeing in the social media that, um, that you guys are delivering is amazing. And I, I know that you're a part of that. So that's what I, I, I want to talk to you today about is uh, just essentially how you led this campaign um, to be successful. Dio, um, what really caught my attention was first off, you're Greek. I'm Greek as well. Uh, and, you know, I know you're from, uh, I know you have a lot of family in Kalamata. And actually, I'm 100% Greek Cypriot. And me and my team were looking for a lot of Greek leaders around the world that are just doing amazing things, essentially, as well as other influencers and business leaders. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that caught my attention and also just the marketing and tech content that you consistently put on Twitter and other social channels regarding nonprofits and as well as 
we all know and love the well-recognized truth initiative commercials and social media on which you manage and direct. So what, that's one of my first questions is what led you to managing digital for the truth tobacco prevention campaign? And essentially what inspired you to pursue digital marketing growing up? How did that happen? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's, I, I think that's an awesome setup and, you know, thank you for the question. First off, I am, I am proud to say that uh, I am a hundred percent Greek, um, first generation <laughs> American. And um, my favorite bar story is, is that, uh, I, I, I'm, I was born from immigrant parents in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July. So um, not many people get to lay claim to that. So, But um, specifically, specifically about uh, truth and digital and, and how those all came, came together, um, you know, just, a, just kind of a, a precursor is why, the, why I wanted to go down the path of the Internet. Um, I was, you know, I grew up in a blue-collar house, household like I said, immigrant parents, we didn't really have much. Um, but my parents, my parents could see ever since I was a little kid that I, I really liked science and technology. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'm dating myself, but I remember in, in, in middle school, we, we got Apple two, two C's and Apple two E's. And I was just always fixated when I got my turn to go and, you know, do, uh, using, using the computers and taking them apart and putting them back together again. Um, and you know, at that point I had known that I wanted to go into some kind of tech, tech, tech path. And originally yeah. I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I could go down the path of maybe computer science or some kind of engineering track, um, something in, something in the sciences. Um, but I found that I, I just like really wasn't meant to, to be the kind of person that sits behind a computer all day and write code. Um, and mind you, I work with some of the the, the smartest coders and developers that I've ever met before. And I applaud them for the work they do, but it just was a matter of striking a balance between where my passions are and how, how I kind of look at the world. Um, you know, I, I think of a, things in a big strategic long-term play and it's, it's a, it's a matter of how, how we will get to where we're going to be five years from now. So going into mm -hmm. college, you know, there really weren't a lot of classes on, 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 um, on the internet and you know business on the internet and stuff like that it was still just an emerging field we had the de the, the dot-com boom i happened to be in school while that was unfolding and i realized that you know this internet thing was going to be something that was going to be a staple um a staple in our lives <clears throat> so you know throughout college i i started i had uh, started small companies um, try to raise money for, for a big venture backed effort. You know, I'd been, uh, had done work with startups and sure enough, I graduated in the bust. Um, so, uh, I, I missed the, I missed the, 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 the window of making crazy amounts of, of fake money. Um, but on the same yeah. note, it was a really uh, noble period because the internet had to correct itself. And, you know, I, I learned right away that I wanted to make a career out of, that which is not um, print or or TV, which and what year was, and what year was this? I got out of school in two thousand and one, so that okay. was right okay. right as uh, it was right as the, the the tech tech market crashed, and it was right before nine eleven. So, you know, um, that being said, <clears throat> my earliest start was I was my my, my first corporate job um, was with a company called. Grassroots Enterprise, which was a San Francisco venture capital based um, mm -hmm. online advocacy company. And that was kind of like a, 
that was really a mind a mind blowing thing back in 2001, 2002 to say you would have advocacy happening on the internet. I think every day now it's not uncommon to have tens of thousands of um, change.org petitions that go up live um, every minute. And, you know, 1.3 million people that revolted against the Snapchat design redesign just last month. It's just like people don't, people take for granted that the internet wasn't even able to support that many logged submissions on any one application back in 2001, 2002. And here we were saying, we're going to change the world and, and bring online activism to the masses and cut the barriers to entry uh, of what was held to an elite group of few that had the ability to go and um, influence politics on the Hill. Um, And so, you know, I got to be part of a really amazing company, a really amazing team. I actually worked for one of my clients was the campaign for tobacco free kids back when they were first starting up and truth and the campaign for tobacco free kids started around the same time after the master settlement agreement, um, between the uh, between the tobacco industry and the 48 states attorney generals um, in five territories that that were in that lawsuit. So, um, about three years ago, I was uh, I was a the principal digital marketer at um, Intelsat, which is a big uh, satellite company, and I got approached by um, some folks that were like, "Hey, you know, Truth is trying to do." Um, Truth is trying to do this this big push in in the digital space, um, and I was like, Truth, I know I know those Truth, I know that Truth brand. I mean, I used to be a smoker. Truth Truth heavily influenced my my life to not want to be a smoker um, and to, mm-hmm. to, to 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 quit smoking ultimately because of of the devastating effects of tobacco. And I was just like, you know, I'm really interested in learning more about the opportunity. Um, you know, Truth Campaign, which is the the preeminent national public health awareness campaign um, under the Truth Initiative, which is our is the national um, public health camp, uh, public health organization that backs the Truth Campaign as well as other initiatives. Um, I was just like, you know, I, this is a natural fit for me. This is something that I'm passionate about. I'd spent about 15 years, yeah. no, no, probably about 13 years in B 2 C, also in B 2 B. I was doing a lot of a lot of my digital strategy was going into building product pipelines or building digital experiences that um, enabled commerce transactions or, you know, mass comms, targeted mass comms campaigns. And I was just like, you know, I, I, I've, I've had a good run. Um, I've been in a lot of high profile roles and high profile positions. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, I want to go and save some lives because that is more rewarding um, to me, than than making millions of rev- millions of dollars in revenues through a craft that that is natural to me. So, you know, to to be able to have an opportunity to come and work for an amazing organization as Truth Initiative, and to be able to be the digital lead um, for the campaign has been um, it's been an amazing journey for me. Been here for about two and a half years. I, I work with so many amazing people. It's not a it's not just me. There's a, there have been hundreds of hundreds of, of dedicated professionals that have been part of the organization throughout the years. Um, we have a really loyal base of um, true truth supporters that we call our truth riders. These are young kids who come. Um, they're teen, teen, 18 to 24 year old young people that will go and literally travel around the country on a bus every summer 
to go and promote the values of um, the organization, but also to, to spread the message about the tobacco industry um, and its targeting tactics and, you know, really raising this generation of young people to, to, to totally um, rally around the fact that this, this common enemy, big tobacco, is trying to influence influence life or actually take, taking life away. So that's how I ended up here. Um, I'm really, really honored to be a part of the organization. Um, I love technology. Um, I love data. I love media um, and advertising. Um, but being able to foster, you know, go from a national campaign where you're reaching millions of people down to a micro of fostering peer-to-peer communications, whether it be on social, mobile marketing, um, even down on the ground of getting young people to activate both online and in person in a peer-to-peer way. That's something that I just really stand for. I think it's amazing to see young people take back the pa- take back the power from you know uh, the handful of people that control it, but really actually doing something to change lives every day. And, and that is what um, Truth Campaign is all about. I love the purpose. That's great. I mean, you know, and I love how you talk about, um, you know, micro, you're, you're reaching people at a micro level and macro level. And I think that's, I, I mean, me being a, a marketing person myself, that's very important. Uh, I, I think a, a lot of problems I see that uh, marketing marketers are making, not even just marketers, I think companies in general, they're thinking too much about the macro instead of the micro. And for example, you just mentioned doing local local things like, you know, in DC and New York, think of where you guys are uh, and, and instead of doing it and just thinking everything on a large scale, you're doing things locally too. And um, you mentioned peer to peer and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's great. And, uh, you know, I know that played a huge role in, in Truth Initiative's success. Um, and I think that's great. Uh, so, so Dio, did you, did, do you think the tech, your tech experience or your tech, a little bit of your tech background helped you or, or it really gave you that, um, that background to be a, a, a strategic marketing person? Do you think that helped you or you think it was a little, you think it was just your passion for marketing? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll tell you honestly, if you had asked me 20 years ago if I thought that I was going to be a marketer and an advertiser, I would have told you no. I thought I was going to be a marketer <laughs> or a scientist. Um, really, what I, what I actually find amazing about the, 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 the practice area of marketing is it's really all about behavioral sciences. So when I went to go do my master's degree, um, I went, I left uh, the U.S., I moved to London. I went to a school right out in the suburbs of, uh, the suburbs of London. Um, called Cranfield School of Management. One of the best schools that I've ever been to in my life, one of the top business schools. And, you know, I pursued a a business, uh, an advanced business degree, but I chose this discipline of strategic marketing because um, it really is a balance between the art and science of behavior. And so, you know, a lot of the things that I was work, what I was just practicing as part of our institution work um, and consulting with companies like, you know, um, Cosmopolitan Magazine and L'Oreal and Unilever um, was like, how is it that we get people to go and buy more products? And there's a, a whole theory behind that. And the whole theory is that there are different conditions, whether it's peer pressure um, or whether it's uh, what, what, what is called subjective norm or social norms, because this is just what happens in my clan or whatnot leads to kind of repeat behaviors, right? Um, obviously access and having money uh, facilitates transactions. Mm-hmm. And so 
the a big part of this was looking at the science behind something that too often people think is very much um, very much kind of like a glam rock, big cool like splashy creative. I mean, the splashy creative is a big part of it, uh, but there is a science and a methodology that goes into basically every purchase decision somebody makes. Um, the technology piece. Or having that that background, um, having that background, and having had to learn how to code because there weren't classes to teach you how to code back in the late '90s, you yeah. know, that gave me a foundation and understanding. I can put these pieces of hardware together, which can power a computing experience, and that computing experience, when connect, connected to other computers, enables a new path forward for transactions. Right. Um, so, whether it be to start an upper funnel activity, which is get introduced to a brand. And so that's reach, right? Um, if the internet provided technology and the internet provided a method to reach net new, net new people uh, that may never have known your brand. And then through peer-to-peer exchanges using digital, whether it be on a national scale or on a local scale, um, helps kind of build that relationship. So kind of like you and I are talking today and we actually met over the internet. Um, yeah. And now we Three, four phone calls later, we're having this 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 conversation today, right? Um, all the way down to the sciences piece, which the behavioral sciences piece, which says, okay, if I if I've established the relationship, if I've built the relationship, if I've earned trust, how do I get somebody to go ahead and participate? Um, participation could be buying something. Participation could be um, choosing not to to start smoking, right? Um, that's one of the interesting dilemmas that 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 we face. Um, is the hardest single thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to talk to 18 to 24 year olds, um, the, the so-called silent generation, right? Because these are the true, uh, digital natives, right? And we're trying to tell them not to do something. I mean, that is one of the hardest business propositions to do. So, um, I think (laughs) again, blending, blending tech, blending science, blending consumer behavior, these all come together and really are, are the, the, the major components of any good marketer. Um, I think a lot of people like to call themselves marketers, but really the discipline of, of marketing is sciences-based. And so I don't think I've ever, ever, ever known an institution where marketing has been considered an art um, because it really is a sciences-based uh, discipline. Yeah, if you think about it, it really is. I always tell people this, that it, marketing is essentially, uh, it really is business psychology because you have to understand the buying behavior, the purchasing behavior, the way the way people think. Uh, and, and I think some of the, I mean, the, the, really the best marketers are are the ones that have amazing, I mean, they, they truly have amazing people skills. They understand people. They understand different, they, uh, they understand different behaviors and the way they, they, the way they um, just the way they think, the way they buy things, the way they use things, um, and that seems like that's kind of what you're talking about, about right? It's more consumer behavior. Uh, at least that's what I believe. I think that's a huge uh, factor in becoming a a very effective uh, marketing leader and team, essentially. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent spot on. Uh, you know, again, whether you're selling something or whether you're trying to change a behavior. Um, it's all based in science. And so, you know, people are people and they're inclined, they're motivated to do things based off of, uh, there are, there really only are a handful of, uh, of, there really are a handful of methods that, that lead to actually these kind of purchase intentions. But, 
you know, trying to change those intentions and being able to predict out how to change intentions and ultimately behaviors. That's the really interesting stuff that we do here at Truth. So like at Truth, you see our commercials, whether you're watching, uh, watching something on television, whether you're channel surfing the net, um, whether you're on Snapchat or on Twitter or on Facebook or any of the other properties, maybe on YouTube, you're seeing our advertising everywhere, right? It's there. But we actually built the whole entire campaign based off of what we call changing knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs, or CABs, um, and ultimately uh, changing intentions and behaviors. And so by being able to look at, at, at this through a scientific approach of how does consumer theory, consumer behavior work, and how can we change the messaging along the way so that we ultimately can get young people to never start something um, which is deadly for them. I mean, that's really what we do here. So it is the, the most eloquent meshing of creative content, science, and data um, that I can possibly think of. That's awesome. I love it. And, and you know, this is what I wanted to ask you, kind of going back a little bit, uh, you meant you were talking about a little strategy. For a truth initiative, like what did you guys really, or in your in your expert opinion, what does it really take for a marketing leader and a team around that leader to be, to get on the na- nation, you know, the national level or even global level uh, to be recognized and to impact positive change? You know, you're trying to impact these, you know, the 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 youth around America to not do something like you said. So you have to hit certain pain points. You got to hit. You got to really understand them. But how do you get to that level to reach that? that size of an audience? What does it take to do that? So this, this is a really interesting question. I've actually been talking a lot about this in, you know, group chats or um, in Twitter groups, um, even in, in other forums where I've been talking with, with other subject matter experts as of late. And, you know, there's kind of like two camps uh, when it comes to things such as social media, right? Um, social media itself gets put on this, gets put on this kind of like a, uh, its own, it gets put in its own bucket as if there's something inherently unique about it. And I kind of break it down. I've been telling, I've been kind of telling the story lately of social media is one of two, it's there's two parts to it. So there's distribution and distribution is actually advertising and more so the discipline that I've, I have an expertise in is in programmatic. So basically using computer-based networks and algorithms to facilitate the distribution. And then there's content creation. So when we talk about social specifically, it really is no different than any other form of communication. Um, what we do really, really well here, though, is both. So I power, I power the, the distribution methodology. So it's the methodical, the, the strategical planning of how are we going to make sure that we get incremental reach so that we can touch um, as many young people in the United States as possible. Um, you know, we do have really tough goals that were set to and benchmarks of the size of the population that we need to reach. And then there's a whole other great group of specialists and experts here that are, uh, that focus on the, the content so that the actual storytelling piece gets picked up and can have a, a set of legs on its own because both need to exist. Distribution, um, computer-based buying uh, and algorithms that are powered by programmatic self-service experiences. Um, when understanding the different um, characteristics and profile traits of young people and their media consumption today helps us optimize the strategy to say, these are the channels that we need to be in, 
but this is how we can effectively increase reach in a targeted way to make sure that not only are we reaching the national populations, but then also the subpopulations that are most adversely uh, affected. So like our, our latest creative has really gone down a much deeper, serious tone talking about um, how the tobacco industry has used marketing tactics to um, influence people in low-income com communities and urban communities and rural communities and military communities yeah. in mental health populations. I mean, it's, it's not this happy-go-lucky type kind of uh, terminology, but on the same note, um, in order to effectively reach the national, the, the national population and then these subgroups in these uh, inner-city urban areas, um, lower-income inner-city urban areas, or in these deep rural communities um, in which a, a national, let's say, TV bike can, can, can't reach, um, you're balancing both. Um, on the same note, the content that we generate, uh, the content that we produce, is it's, it's a methodical approach to saying – you know, what will have the most lift and the most legs so that people will want to share it. Um, they'll want to talk about it. You know, I hate to use the expression water cooler talk because that's not what our demographic <laughs> is, but their water cooler talk is through retweeting or commenting or sharing or even emoji reacting so their friends can see what they're participating in. And so a big part of our, our, our of our methodology is hitting it from two fronts. You know, creating this, this amazing content um, that does change um, knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs towards smoking, and then having uh, very sophisticated buying systems um, and, and targeting apparatuses and segmentation approaches so that we know where all of our audiences are so we can most effectively leverage the distribution channels to reach them. So hopefully that, that answered the question. Uh, answered. It's a multi-pronged question that I just answered right now. So. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, yeah, I love it. Very detailed. I think that's great information for people to know. And and it, do you guys ever? So you, you mentioned content. Is it more? You know, I, I mean, you have these amazing commercials, but are those have those been most effective for you? Is the is the video content, the commercials, or also the written audio? Uh, are you guys putting? Are you guys putting? You know, I'm sure dollars into paid paid content as well, like paid advertising on Facebook. Things like that. Yeah, I mean, we're we don't leave any st stone unturned. So um, my team here manages all of our owned and operated assets. Um, so that would be all of our organic means, such as email and SMS marketing. Um, we have a, a huge presence on Twitter, Snapchat, um, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we're big. We're we're very big on on YouTube. This is the YouTube generation. Um, and we also are big into to, to national television because we do know that the content that people will tune into on, let's say, Adult Swim or on MTV um, will still be able to capture large uh, populations um, in the 18 to 24 demo. Um, the, the, the content is going – our approach is we, we right-size content to fit the channel but also to fit what the publisher is best at delivering. So the way that we'll approach content for, let's say, Adult Swim is going to be very different than the way that we would approach content for, let's say, um, uh, Awesomeness TV. You know, strategic, strategic hyper-targeting. Yeah, well, it's, it's not even just from a targeting standpoint. Like the content itself needs to – it needs to fit the vertical in which the, the, reason, the reason why people tune into certain types of programming is because – or turn into certain types of channels because 
they know that there's a certain type of program that they're going to see, whether it's serious, whether mm-hmm. it's funny, whether it's comedic, whether it's slapstick humor, um, whether it's really dark, whether it's deep, you know, um, whether it's po- poetic, you know, we actually lean into those moments left and right. We also have a, we're also a firm believer um, and we do back, uh, back producing content specific to, um, you know, moments in, in life. So, you know, when we were tar- when, when our, when our demo was much younger, you know, we would be in, uh, we would surround content and shows or themes around, you know, prom for instance, right. Um, because we knew that young people were going to be there and we would have snackable content around, let's say that, 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 um, uh, that theme. We're really big on the earth. We know that this generation, um, Gen Z, if there's one thing that, that most, just about every Gen Zer can align around is saving the planet. So we, we, we just launched Better Butts, for instance, which um, plays off the fact that, you know, it was Earth, Earth Day on Sunday. Um, we're going into Earth Week. You know, April effectively is Earth Month. Um, you know, and we've got content around tobacco and the environment. Um, we've got, we, we're constantly producing content in which uh, young people can lean into cultural moments and our content is relevant to the moment that they're leaning into. That's awesome. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. So (laughs) the simple question though is it is a blend of paid and, and, and organic. I mean, that's, that's in order to reach a national population, there would be no way of doing it just organically, but we have a huge owned and operated presence. um, As I mentioned from email to SMS to organic social and so on and so forth. Um, which gives us lots of touch points into this generation. Yeah, yeah. Does truth? I mean, the way you lead your team and all these different marketing initiatives. Uh, I know you have uh, you know different goals every. I'm sure every month, every quarter, every year that you need to reach. But are is an you know is you being in the nonprofit space with truth? Do you consider the marketing a lot different than a corporation marketing? Like for example, T-Mobile. Do you think they market a lot differently? Than you guys market, you think they're they're obviously they have different goals, right? I mean, they're they're for profit. They're very different. It's a little more of a money making campaign. But do you think, in terms of the strategies, in terms of reaching their audiences and things like that, do, is that is it a lot different? Because I know you've worked for large brands as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you use um, that, that you use mobile mobile carriers as an example because I, I've actually worked on campaigns for many of the mobile carriers in this, this country. Um, it's interesting because when I do a, when I do public speaking engagements and, and, and stuff on behalf of the brand, I'm often asked that question. What's the difference between nonprofit marketing and, and consumer marketing? And yeah. I simply say, fundamentally, the, the, that the thing that I can sell is I can sell saving a life. Um, the hardest part about my job is getting a young person not to do something, um, which is very different than, let's say, the example of T-Mobile and getting people to lock in a long-term plan with unlimited bandwidth and all sorts of freebies and then getting the, the fancy new phone and then upgrading all the accessories, so on and so forth. Um, but fundamentally, the methodologies are, are really the same because – as far as, as as far as I've applied it, and the way that that the strategies that I've built that I since I've been here, the way that my team um, operates and in, in, uh, operates in delivery um, is through a purchase funnel. That it's 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 our own proprietary purchase funnel to truth. But a purchase funnel is is a purchase funnel. I mean, 
your very first point in the purchase funnel is um, brand recognition. Can you get somebody to recognize a brand? Yeah. And then you get them into the funnel and then that's kind of developing, developing the relationship and kind of pushing intent. So like if you think about selling cars, right? The, the car industry vertical has got its six steps to a purchase intent and then retention. We've basically taken that model and said, it works the same. It's still B2C. Um, the, the, the difference is the value proposition and ultimately what we're trying to sell. Um, and so we've adapted what has been the traditional B2C model. And I actually don't even want to say the traditional B2C model because we've created our own model. Um, and it's definitely, it's deeply steeped in data and sciences, technology, and then the content fits in perfectly because the, the content gets right sized to where you are in the life cycle. Um, but we operate everything through, let's get people into upper funnel. Let's get them to understand who the brand is, what the messaging that we're trying to convey is. Let's build a relationship through kinetic ongoing actions, whether that's being taking quizzes, doing uh, emoji reactions to, to facts that we put out there, um, you know, snackable moments that you can have, let's say, in, in Twitter and Snapchat, um, building that kind of affinity and relationship. And then ultimately getting people to, to join the movement, uh, which is the hardest thing. Because once you've, you've gotten somebody to the point of commitment where they've become, they've become, so, they've become so, so, uh, so enveloped in the brand that they want to be part of a movement, then you have to constantly produce things for people to do, um, of which we do. And we're cranking things out um, every single day of what is the next thing that we, we can give people to do that they actually care about and want to do. You know, whether it's going out into a park and picking up cigarette butts or, you know, um, you know, that's one example or, you know, just sharing, sharing the knowledge with a friend who smokes that like, hey, you know, if you've got a pet in the house, um, smoking kills pets. Like people don't really think about that. Right. And then we lean into those kind of themes when yeah. we launch the next round of creative, because the analogy that I just gave you is that most people don't realize that smoking kills pets. The very first campaign that I got to work on was our Cat Mageddon um, campaign, which is really, really, really interesting. Where we used actual pet influencers. Um, we used cat influencers like Roomba Cat, you know, and Pirate <laughs> Cat, and it was really shocking for people to to see that, like, oh, oh, wow, if I'm smoking in my apartment and I have a cat, I'm actually killing my cat, and people don't even realize that, like, you know, so. There's this, this, it's this, this whole approach of saying, building this funnel and getting activities into the funnel and getting people into the funnel and understanding where they are at every life cycle, at, at every stage in the life cycle, um, helps us build relationships with people so that, that, that they will then in turn go out and be the advocates on the behalf of the brand. Yeah. It seems like you guys have built this, um, you know, this na national, you know, nationwide loyal community i would say kind of like brand loyal loyalty it's like they're all very you get them you you get into their minds they start to really believe in the truth initiative right and they essentially they they beat they're they're a part of that community and they start to become loyal to it it's almost kind of like i don't want to compare you guys to apple or anything but it's almost like apple people are so you know they just continuously purchase apple products and follow a lot of you know the, all these Apple events and everything like that because they're so loyal to the brand. They just love what they do and their products and all this kind of stuff. It's the same with you guys, except your currency is really saving lives. It's not about making money. Absolutely, it's spot on. I mean, yeah. this is this is one thing that you can ask anybody here, and 
you know, we always talk about the brand because uh, we believe in authenticity. We want to be an authentic brand. We want to be that thing that people recognize as being, you know, something that they are a part of. And um, we are a movement and we're creating the generation to end smoking. So that's our big thing here. So that's amazing. Yeah. Great stuff, man. This is this is awesome. Yeah. I mean, and and, and this is the thing we talked a little bit about. Uh, you, you mentioned data uh, a few times before and and, you know, from the data that you guys have gathered from all these camp, you know, campaigns and marketing strategies that you've implemented, you obviously have looked at the data and analyzed it. What were really some of the, I mean, deal, what were really the, some of the, the most effective marketing sh- channels or strategies or funnels that you guys implemented that had the most, you know, success? Was it the commercials or was it more social media? Because a lot, the, the young audience, they're all over the place, like Snapchat, right? So you said, you mentioned Snapchat, that's going to, that's going to touch them. They, they're going to, they're going to be so engaged with Snapchat because a lot of them, they're on Snapchat all the time or Instagram. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to offer you up a, an answer that's a little bit tangential to the question that you asked. Okay. Um, Cause one of the things that we've done here that many, many companies are really trying to, to get behind um, is this concept of data management processes and um, I don't know how familiar you are or, or the community that listens to this podcast is with, with data management, with ad tech, um, and with MarTech, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies out there that, that, that float. We've got DMPs, we've got DMPs, we've got DMPs. There's a lot of companies that say, Hey, we're using DMP technology and hybrid cloud, but I will tell you that we actually, you know, one of the things that we set out to do when, when I first got here was, um, we built a hybrid cloud for truth. And so, we have an end-to-end data. Uh, we have an end-to-end um, data management suite, so that any input and any output that comes through, um, like you know, owned and operated, all the way to paid advertising, the 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 data is being collected in in, in a, a centralized cloud, so that we can make sense of it. Um, and so, I, I think the the real answer to your question about what is the most effective marketing channel or strategy that we implemented is actually stitching together the pieces of the story from every channel into what, what we then can do is create unified profiles. And we say, you know, like this is where you start getting into things like multi-touch attribution, channel attribution, so on and so forth. But for us, it's really being able to say, these are real people. Um, these are real people. And this is what they care about. Mm-hmm. This is what they, this is the way that they're going to be most receptive to the next message that we put out. And here are the channels that they're most receptive to. So when we go out and we put a piece of content on Snapchat, it's not just because Snapchat has a format guideline, which is it's got to be a 3V vertical ad unit that's no longer than 10 seconds long, right? <laughs> that, that is just like that's brass tack basics. Right. When we actually create the moment, we're actually creating a, an experience. And that experience is a series of short stories that leans into facts about tobacco that we truthify, that's my quote unquote right here, um, into a, a moment that young people will be receptive to. Um, and they're actually going on a storytelling journey within a series of snap stories. And they're also interacting with the truth.com all along the way. And they're participating in quizzes and other types of activities as they're engaging with our content. So from there, those, those, those insights then go back into the, this hybrid cloud solution 
and we're able to cr- create new new segments, new audiences um, to approach them on the next channel that they're going to be on. So I, I feel like that's the more interesting insight to take away as opposed to any one specific tactic right. that we use um, because tactics are really tactics. And, and I'm more of a strategy a strategy focused person of how can we build, you know, unified personalities. Um, I think a lot of marketers talk about persona based marketing. I almost feel like we've graduated, we graduated persona based marketing two years ago. Um, we're talking about, you know, algorithmically derived segments. I mean, these are humans. This is, these are humans and what they actually care about and what their passion points are about and where they care to go and consume media and making sure that there's a relevant message to them um, that focuses on customer experience because the last thing that we want to do is, you know, agitate a young person. I mean, that's just how you turn somebody off right away, especially in this yeah. generation, which spends on our, I, God, I was, uh, I'm actually working on another article. Uh, I'm working on an article right now where, you know, I'm substantiating some of my own facts. Young people are, they spend on average as of 2017, 83 minutes a week, uh, consuming mobile content, uh, mobile video content. I mean, that's just crazy. They're, they're glued to these devices. And they're having an entire experience on the different channels that they are, it's an, but it's an experience. So um, I think that's the most effective and valuable lesson that we've learned. Um, and we've applied it and we apply it in an omni-channel strategy way. That's great. Yeah. Great. I, I think that's a really good answer. <laughs> uh, and, and what you feel, Dio, with kind of like social media uh, and content marketing, I, I mean, you know what's it's changing every day. It's, it's honestly very hard to keep up with. There's a lot of these social channels that are coming out and um, a lot of different, just the way we write content and we, the way we distribute content. Do you think that's changing a lot based on your experience? Do you think in today's digital age, social media and content marketing are like, where do you think they're headed now? Especially in the nonprofit space. Yeah. I, I, I kind of hark, I, I want to liken it back to something that, that, we were talking about earlier in the show, which is I very much have this, this perspective that there's distribution and then there's content. So yeah, people like to, people talk about social media as if it's this thing that's very, very unique and specific. And I decompartmentalize that and say, there's, there's two things that really make up social media. The social part is where the content comes in because you want to create compelling content that fosters dialogue. Uh, right. The distribution part is the actual programmatic piece of delivery, delivering the message, um, the paid promotion, and even the organic tactics that are used. Um, I think that the the landscape right now, we're in a very interesting period of time. Um, there's a lot of concern about fake news. There's a lot of concern about data privacy. There's a lot of concern about um you know, uh, how much these companies know about, about people. And, and I kind of subscribe to the belief that like the, the platforms themselves, the platforms themselves will have to evolve to address, um, even just changes in laws. I mean, GDPR, the big new, uh, EU mandate, which goes into effect, I think it's May 25th. Um, it's really going to change the way that companies, you know, transact and collect data. Um, I've always been a, a firm believer that any successful organization that wants to do not only content marketing right, but also ad distribution right, should always believe and be behind first-party data. And so that was one of the very first things that I brought here, 
as part of the campaign was how we can apply first party data because I've always been a, uh, as a B2C marketer, I've, I've always felt that first party data is the most important method of reaching people. And, you know, when we talk yeah. about first party data, you're talking about permission data, something that somebody has deliberately participated in or joined into because they want to. And so earlier on the show, we were talking about our purchase funnel and how ultimately we want to get people to join the movement and be part of the generation and smoking, you know, like um, the same goes for T-Mobile who, who locks you, who wants to get you to sign up for um, you know, an unlimited bandwidth plan with a free iPhone. I mean, it's all about creating this like retained life cycle and journey. How that how that plays out into the specific channels themselves, it's it's really hard to tell right now what will be the next big thing. Um, I think that there are going to be huge advances in mobile computing. Um, I think that increasingly people are going to actually be they're going to be further d- divorced from desktop based devices. Um, and at some point here in the future, I actually think that people are going to be divorced from their mobile phones as well. I mean, it, it, I'm a very big fan of wearables, for instance. Um, and I think that people will will be able to be in immersive experiences just by putting on their regular reading glasses, you know, with their reading glasses having embedded displays. I mean, you've seen it with uh, synapticals and yeah. the Oculus Rift devices. I mean, the, 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 the latest... Uh, the, the latest spectacles from Snapchat, they're actually, the, they just were re- released yesterday, I think. Um, they actually look like Warby Parker glasses that have built in, uh, built in cameras. And, uh, from, Snapchat? And, uh, from Snapchat? Hello? You said from Snapchat? You said yeah, from Snapchat, Snapchat, the latest, the wow. spectacles, wow. the version two spectacles were just launched uh, this week. And they're, they're actually like attractive Warby Parker looking-ish glasses that have uh, built in cameras <laughs> and, and AR displays. So, this whole concept of augmented experiences, I think, is going to be huge. Um, I think yeah. that young people are already a big part of it where they want to be part of, let's say, the video game that they're playing. So by being able to augmenting their physical space and being part of it, it's going to be huge. Um, but I think that's probably the greatest, biggest insight that I can give you right now uh, as we're in this kind of transformative phase where a lot of these networks are having having to, uh, to, to react very quickly to things that have been evolving in the news cycle. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, me and my team were talking about this as well, like where where we think social media is really headed. And, and it's, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I don't know, obviously everyone has a mobile phone and everyone has a, you know, everyone's on their phone all the time and, and there's mobile marketing and there's all these, you know, um, uh, social media, everyone's using their, their phone on, on social, like Instagram, for example. But I don't know how long that's going to, I mean, I'm not saying that they're going anywhere, but I think a lot of these big platforms like Facebook, Instagram, they're going to add these augmented reality experiences. Um, so, and I'm sure there's going to be this new, up, you know, this new great social media company or platform that comes out that's just kind of augmented re- related, you know, and that could be the new next best thing, but that's also down the road. I mean, we, we don't really know, but no, I agree. I think that's kind of where things are headed as well. And, you know, AI, artificial intelligence is is um, is getting big right now. It's huge. And it's it's pretty crazy, man, where things are headed. But, um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I I think that's kind of where things are I, I going right now. And do you, you – like, what you know, specific so- touch points, Dio, do you, have you experienced in – I mean, are, like, are there any touch points that you've experienced in which targeted your audience most effectively that you've noticed? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I briefly touched part this uh, upon this earlier in, in in the show, but you know, 
we lean in as an organization at Truth. We lean in heavily into to important cultural moments yeah. to young people. So young people, they love uh, arts and entertainment. There are big shows like the Grammys and the VMAs and uh, the American Music Awards and whatnot. Um, they also really, really care about the environment. So Earth Day was this past Sunday. Um, you know, they care about uh, uh, they care. There's there's a whole bunch of moments that happen, whether it's, you know, rallying around a, a sporting moment or uh, what's going on with the latest, you know, Kardashians, you know, whatnot. We, we try and insert ourselves into dialogues of these kind of key trending cultural moments because um, we have a place to be in there. Because oftentimes we're in a, in a space that's also uh, being occupied by um, other youth brands that are, are literally trying to sell something. When again, we want to be in that narrative so that we're actually also uh, imparting a really strong message to young people that they should never pick up a, uh, a cigarette to begin with, um, while they're thinking about the next Taco Bell experience that they're ha- they're going to have, um, and the next soft drink that they're going to consume. Right. I mean, it's a very, it's a very from from our, our standpoint, like that. That's the the most simplistic thing that I could say is is that there are these moments, these these cultural moments. That that are very important to young people, and we participate in a part of that. From the targeting perspective as well, you know, um, we talked a bit earlier about you know which tactics or, or strategies that we use here. You know, we we build audience an audience based strategy, and we know that there are different types of audiences within the Gen Z um, the Gen Z uh, demographic. Mm-hmm. So we we leverage data to. To, to actually create groups based off of things that are important to each user. So that way we can mesh both the moment and the content with the right audience to make sure that there's the most receptivity to the message. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, it seems, it seems like you guys are incredibly data-driven. And, and it's not even just that. What I've noticed, what you've mentioned is you, it, it's a lot about the um, – it's like you're implementing these cultural – it's like cultural marketing. You're You're – understanding the culture uh, of the Gen Z audience um, and and based on the initiatives that you guys are executing, delivering, you're getting data and you're adapting the campaigns accordingly. And I'm sure things are, you're just continuously improving, improving, improving and targeting, targeting them more effectively to ensure that they, you know, don't smoke <laughs> and that they pass along the word. And it, it kind of, um, it, it, it goes viral as well. Cause I noticed a lot of the content you guys have, I mean, it, there's, there's a huge reach. I mean, the, the content, it's amazing stuff, man. It's, it's really, really good, good stuff out there. And, um, I, I think that plays a huge role in, in the truth success. Well, I really appreciate it. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a lot of hard work by a lot of, uh, a lot of men and women, um, and also young people who, who make up, you know, our extended community here at truth. So, um, and truth initiative, I mean, there's, you know, I think I said this earlier. It's it's not a it's it's not a it's not a one person show. I mean, we're a village here, so I'm more like an army. <laughs> is what I like to think. Of. Yeah, yeah. You you are. I mean, your team. I, I, that's what it's about. You know, it's it's not about what we do as leaders. It's a real, really the people we have around us. If you have a, an amazing team, you're going to do amazing stuff, and and that's really really what it's about is is onboarding all these um just these um people around you that are doing things for the right reasons and, and have the right motives and 
And um, I, I think that plays a, a vital role into the success of, of what you guys are doing. Um, and I think in any company as well. So Dio, you as a, a business leader uh, or marketing leader, how do you got, how do you feel like patience plays a vital role in overall marketing success, you know, people, the thing is, is that people are always looking for the quick result. Do you notice that just has such high expectations, uh, quick results, just they're not, they're not willing to just, you know, be patient. I don't mean be patient as in wait things to happen, you know, just wait things to, um, you know, not, not be, not be, uh, reactive and proactive, but I just mean like having these incredibly unrealistic expectations when, um, when implementing campaigns and strategies, do you think, what, what are your thoughts on patience? Well, so I think this, this is, you know, divorced from marketing altogether. I mean, any experience in life, if you try and rush through it, really, really what you're doing is you're either being reactive to something or, um, you're probably not thinking clearly through yeah. what it is that, that, that you're trying to do. So, um, I've always I've always adopted a, 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 a an approach where there's a strategy, a foundational strategy, and whether that's a three or a five or a ten year strategy, um, it, it's malleable enough to adjust to, to changes in um, changes in technology, changes in the world, changes in economies, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel that like unless you if you don't have a north star then you're kind of just running in lots of different directions, yeah. right? Um, it's no different when you're talking about marketing success, right? And launching a successful campaign. Um, you know, there are moments where you have a, you have a, a unique opportunity to really um, jump on something that's hot and trending and, you know, insert yourself into a dialogue. Uh, and that's what a really good strategy allows you to do is to be nimble enough so that you can react to these moments and times where you need to, to really churn out something and be impatient, right? right. Um, impulse sometimes is some of the greatest, some of the greatest creative I've ever seen in my life sometimes is very impulsive, you know, because it's like somebody's got a really great idea that they just came up with on a whim and, and you just roll with it. But that's, in my, in my opinion, that's never, uh, that, that's never the, it's never sustainable for a long-term objective. So thinking back to, to the work that we do here, we're trying to change behavior, right? Behavior is not an easy thing to change. Yeah. Uh, on the same note, you you had made a reference earlier in the show about Apple. Like, it took Apple a long time to build the kind of loyalty that it has to get people to queue up on a rainy on a rainy day to wait, maybe even days to be able to get a new product. Right. right. Um, called patience. That's called you know being deliberate in the approach of wanting to deliver something. Um, I'm not saying that every use case applies to let's say the Apple model, but um, I think that's probably very, very deliberate because their product is their their product is their brand, right? But I think that like successful successful leaders and successful marketing practitioners and other scientists and other fields, you know, um, you, you you have to exercise a bit of patience and understand that like again, there's this north star that we're trying to trying to get to. That's the strategy. The strategy has tactical components. The tactical components need to be flexible enough. Um, to lend themselves to moments of reaction um, or proactivity, um, but like ultimately, if you're not if you're not driven to accomplish an end goal, and if you haven't aligned yourself to accomplish that end goal, um, you know, 
the impatience will never get you to that goal. And if that goal constantly changes, then you've never had a goal to begin with. So I'm a firm believer in kind of identifying that North Star, building a plan to get to that North North Star, having a deliberate approach um, and laddering every campaign up to that North Star, and having enough flexibility within that, that plan to be able to have these kind of knee-jerk moments where, where you seize on a really great idea or a really great cultural moment that, that you can jump into. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I think patience is, is huge. And I think a, a lot of it is very um, – I think it's kind of under underestimated how important it is. I know, Gary, you, mean, you talked a little bit about Gary Vaynerchuk. He always talks about patience and the importance of it. It, doesn't, and it means not just sitting around. It means uh, obviously working hard and, and – uh, and executing and, and just going out there and doing it, but being patient with results is, you know, there, there's, it's hard to see overnight success. It takes time for, for people to understand what you're doing and, and for it to be successful. It's a, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of trial and error. Um, so I, I think that's really important. So, you know, Dio, do you have a certain, uh, just, you know, some, a few final questions here. Do you have a certain approach, uh, along with, you know, aside from patience, that's more like a step-by-step process, um, of what marketing leaders, aspiring marketing leaders need to take for campaign success? Like what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think of this and I'm going to be a little bit of cliche here and yeah. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm going to just leave you with, I'm going to leave you with this thought for a moment and then we can revisit it. Um, I always live by, this, this mantra where if I'm the smartest person in the room, I better find a new room um, because I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. And I know that the people, the people that, that, that I've hired over my career, but even here at Truth, um, Truth Initiative, uh, the people that make up my team, you know, every person is, is smarter than I am in some way, shape or form. And they've got informed opinions and informed ideas and, they need to have the the room to be able um, to be able to articulate and share those those their, their wisdom. Because as a leader, I kind of look at it and say to myself, if I am able to surround myself with other people that have um, expertise in a certain area that I don't, then I am evolving. Um, on the same note, I can provide the leadership and mentorship to places where that other smart person wants to grow as well. So yeah. the cliche moment is. You know, if you're if you're the smartest person in the room, find a new room. Unless you really like being the smartest person in the room, which I don't advocate. If you're a successful leader, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, above and beyond that, though, you know, it, it is all about teamwork. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned before that uh, I don't think it's not me. It's not me in the campaign. I, I'm actually pretty new. I would say in the campaign. I've been here for two and a half years. There are people that have been here for 15 years who have been part of the bread and butter of the campaign since the, the early wow. DNA of it. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I believe it takes a village uh, to accomplish anything. And sometimes that village might only be three people um, or it could be a hundred people or it could be 10,000 people. But you know, if, if there were another piece of insightful wisdom that I could uh, provide to other aspiring leaders to be is, you know, understand that collaboration, it's not I, it's the collective we. I know that's another cliche, but it's really important because when when you foster a sense of community um, and you operate your teams or your organizations as a community, um, you'll get more receptivity, more buy-in, more adoption, and then people want to be part of something bigger. Um, so, you know, those are probably two of the 50 other things that I could give you would be my, my advice to, to emerging leaders. 
the most important ones. Yeah. And, and are, is there anything that future leaders, what they need to really be aware of or avoid? Yeah, I, I think, I, I think the, the, the way I've always operated, the always a way I've operated, whether in my personal life or in my professional life is to always be self-aware and being self-aware yes. is a little different than being, um, you know, caution, cautionary uh, or precautionary. Like I, I always want to understand. I, I always feel that where, whatever environment that I'm in, I need to understand the state that I'm in. And then I also need to understand the other people in the room and what their, their triggers are and what their passion points are. I know um, what you mean. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I may not be articulating that in the most, uh, I may not be articulating this well, but you know, self-awareness is one of the most critical critical aspects of leadership because when when people understand what they can't control and when people can't understand what they're not good at, then I think they're far more comfortable being around other people that actually do know what they're what they're good at and what their strong suits are, and it's complementary. Um, so, you know, I think the the biggest thing that the the biggest thing that I would encourage any any young person or any any experienced person that's on the precipice of becoming a, a, of a great leader, uh, their, their biggest thing to avoid is avoid not being self-aware, um, which is a double negative there. But, you know, it's, it's really the whole, the whole concept of, of know who you are, understand who you are, understand that you're, you have weaknesses, understand that you have strengths, and understand that the people around you are, are hopefully, hopefully you are, you're in an environment in which people compliment you. If you're if you're fortunate enough to build your own teams, you should be deliberate in looking at um, adding complementary components um, to your group so that there there is this group of really smart people. Um, so yeah, I mean I, I think that's the, one of the big pitfalls that I think some 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 leaders fall into is they really they really don't understand how they are in respect to how other people are perceiving them. Um, and then again, back to the uh, the analogy that I I, I made. Uh, on the previous question, which is, you know, again, if you find yourself being the smartest person in the room, find another room, because uh, that's the only way you're going to evolve, uh, evolve as a species, you know? Yeah. And also that goes back into uh, being stagnant. Do you ever hear about that? You know, so the, the, a huge part of being successful and success is everyone is success is a, is a different meaning for, for everybody. And I'll, I'll ask you that question in a second, but um, it, I think it's, it's, plateauing. And I think when you're the, when you say being the smartest person in the room, yeah, it feels empowering to yourself. But the thing is, is that that's going to make you stagnant and that's going to make you plateau. And I think with having people around you that are smarter than you, that's going to make you learn from them and they're going to learn from you. And you're going to, I think that's just going to make you grow, um, you know, just personally and, and um, just learn more and, edu- you know, educate yourself more and, and, and challenge you more. Um, I think that's very, very important. And I feel, you know, some people that I, I, I know I've met, um, they just love to be the, the you know, the, the top dog in their company organization because it makes them feel great, but they're not really learning anything more. And and I, I'm, I agree completely with you. I love to surround myself with people that just know more than me. I, it's not, you know, you don't want to keep comparing yourself to others. It's always good to have that synergy with your team. And you're all, as long as you're all there for the right reasons and trying to achieve the same goals and you're there helping and empowering each other, that's what's going to make a successful team. I couldn't agree with you. Um, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh. So, well, that just, that just kind of, uh, you know, it tells me where, you know, why you guys are where you are and, and that's, that's amazing stuff, man. And keep it up. And I, 
I think you're going to, you know, it's going to continuously, um, you, know, you know, the truth is going to continuously uh, do better things over, you know, through the course of the years. And that's, that's awesome, man. So I always, just to close things out, Dio, uh, I always ask these three last questions. I call them the three hows. Mm-hmm. So how do you define failure? How do you define entrepreneurship? Because entrepreneurship is, has a different meaning for everyone. And how do you define success? Yeah, so <clears throat> I always love those questions because it, it, it really forces it really forces you to think about it unless you've memorized your, yes. your three answers, which I, I don't I don't have a pre-can set of three answers because again, to your point, there are a lot of different ways that that we can perceive failure, entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship, and success. Um, you know, at, at this point in my life, at this point in my career, at this point in you know what I've accomplished and what I've yet to accomplish. Um, the way I would define failure is failing, failing to accept the fact, um, failing to accept the fact that we as humans cannot control everything. And it's one of those things where, you know, it could come, it's, it's, sometimes it comes with experience. Sometimes it comes with age. Sometimes it comes with some, some people are just naturally born with the ability to understand that. But like, you know, we cannot control everything. And there are, there are people who try to control every aspect of their life, but life wasn't meant to be this kind of like perfect box or this perfect jigsaw puzzle. Um, And so I I feel like, you know, the the more people want things to be scripted, the more likely that there will be more failure because they're failing to address the fact that, you know, um, there's a continuum and nothing is, nothing is stationary. Um, when I think about entrepreneurship, um, you know, I think true entrepreneurship is, you know, visionary people that have the ability to take calculated risks and push the boundaries and norms of conventions. Um, and the way I think of that is I say calculated risk because we shouldn't be just blindly throwing darts at the wall, right? You know, we cannot be so overly scripted. Um, you know, let's say Six Sigma approach type stuff where it's the same, same six steps all the time, right? So, you know, when great ideas, greater idea, great ideas are usually born out of failures, right? So your three hours, they go in a perfect kind of cadence with one another, right? And so, you know, I think most people typically think of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship as being, you know, the the self-made millionaire, you know, maybe like somebody would hearken that to like the Jeff Bezos of the world. Um, I'll honestly tell you, Jeff Bezos had a really brilliant idea. He was just like, I'm going to undercut what colleges are charging for college books. And he created a much more efficient delivery method. He took risks, but he took calculator yeah. risks and he assessed the marketplace. And now look, Amazon is is on pace to, to, to be the world's largest retailer, right? Um, I find my life to be, I find my life to operate very much in a similar way. I don't own my own business. Um, I'm not my own businessman, but, um, I feel like I have a, my own practice area and an organization that allows me to do so because, you know, I've earned the trust and respect of my colleagues and peers to be able to take calculated risks in forecasting that the world is changing. And if we don't adapt and if we're not proactive to change, you know, then we're going to stagnate and then, you know, then you, that leads to failure, right? Um, last but not least, yes. when you say success, you know, success can be, uh, can be viewed as a lot of different things. Some people think of success as having power. Some, pe- some people think of success as having lots of awards and lots of trophies in the trophy case. 
Um, some people think of success as making a lot of money. I don't look at it at any of those. Um, success to me is being able to measure that you're making a difference and that you're actually seeing change. Um, and that's applicable to nonprofit life and it's applicable to for-profit life. Um, my, my life today as it is at Truth, you know, I measure success through incrementally saving a new life every day. I mean, we were, ever since the, we were able to finally release this, the, this, this fact at the end of last year, at the end of 2017, um, since the relaunch of the campaign in 2014, um, we have saved over 300,000 lives. I mean, that's huge. I mean, that is, that is wow. impactful. Since the inception of the organization um, back in 2001 or its early foundings and after the, the, the Mash Settlement Agreement in 1999, we've saved over a million lives. I mean, that's huge. Um, but on the same note, I also just made an analogy about Jeff Bezos. I mean, he started off by selling college books in a dorm room, and today he's the world's largest retailer. So success is measurable. It's something that you can actually see a difference in, in lives and the way that people, um, you know, transact with things. Um, I think this whole entire conversation that we've had today has been talking all about like journeys and workflows and, you know, qualifying people through purchase funnels and so on and so forth. All of that methodical hard work is meant so that whatever you start off with, which is generally in our case here, people that don't know anything about tobacco and its effects, its, it's health effects, right? Well, you could start off with that, and at the end, you have somebody that wants to be part of the generation and smoking. I mean, that's measurable success. So well, that's, that's measuring. That's a measurable Absolutely. difference. So those are my yeah. You're speak, you're speaking my language, man. I I, I think that's amazing. I, I I love to hear that. It's I, I think uh, making money is just a, it's a byproduct of what we're you know of how we're impacting lives. It's not. You know, you're not, I always say this, you're, when, when you die, you're not taking money with you. You know what I mean? But you're going to have a lot of people coming to your funeral because you made a huge difference in the world. That's what my so, mother says to me every day. My 73-year-old mother with still a really <laughs> thick accent who still, still says the wrong words with the right intentions, says to me all the time, she's like, I can't take it with me to my grave. So, you know, I think money is a byproduct of success. Um, and money, or, or should okay. I say richness is a byproduct of success because richness isn't necessarily just money. You know, you can be enriched in a lot of different ways. So, but I hope you appreciated my three hows. Absolutely. No, amazing, man. I think that's perfect. The perfect way to end it. And, uh, Dio, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. I mean, you've, you've given so much, um, you know, I would say strategic, uh, insight and just a lot of details and, I think a lot of people can can learn from uh, from this episode, and I really appreciate, it, man. I know you're super busy, so thanks again for being a part of uh, of my journey here with this podcast. And I hope people can learn from it and, and get inspired from it. Um, so, where can everyone find you, Dio? Uh, your you know the Truth website, your personal social handles, everything. I, yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm probably one of the easiest people to find on the internet. Um, I'm at Dio Favatas, as D I O F A V A T A S. Um, so I'm not to be confused with Ronnie James Dio, but like I'm, I'm literally Dio. I'm one of the few Google searches that will return a, a result for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can, if you're on, on truthinitiative.org, we have a bio section. Um, you know, my LinkedIn, you can find me, search Dio Favatis or Dionysius Favatis. Um, I think by misspelling my name, you're likely to get a Google instant search result anyways. So um, this is not the most common name, um, not the com most common name out there. 
But uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm the easiest target is Twitter um, at Dio Favadis. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah, Dio, really appreciate you again, man. Thank you so much for, uh, for everything. Yeah, no, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm glad that we started this journey. Gosh, I want to say five months ago was the first time you and I, you and I were in touch, and um, I'm excited that that uh, I was uh, that you invited me to be a part of the show. I'm I'm really honored to be a part of um, a part of this, and, and I wish you all the success in the world. You've been a great great person to to have gotten to know, and I only hope that uh, our relationship grows in the future. Absolutely. Likewise. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I think it's been, it's been great. And uh, this is going to lead to a lot of other bigger things. So I'm excited, man. Really appreciate it. So again, thank you, everyone. This is Michael Giorgio, again, your host from Tales from the Pros. And until next time.